Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 2. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number, 877. Sorry, sneeze. 877-973-7425. If you ever had one of those sneezes, you know it's coming. You know it's coming. If I talk, it's going to happen. I better not talk. Well, it's not coming, so I'll start. Oh, there it comes. <laughs> All right. I, 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 this is relevant to, to what I want to talk about. This is the Wall Street Journal. Let me just read you some of this. Chris Anderson, the British entrepreneur behind the popular TED Talks, online lectures that often receive millions of views, has been embroiled in a public spat with Coleman Hughes, a podcaster and prolific essayist, who writes about culture, politics, and race. Mr. Hughes is black. I first met Mr. Hughes sometime in the late 2010s when he was still an undergraduate philosophy major at Columbia. This is written by Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal. Since then, his writings have been published in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, among other outlets. He's testified before Congress and participated in academic conferences in the United States and Europe, and he's only 27. In April, Mr. Hughes was invited to give a TED Talk about colorblindness, a topic of his forthcoming book. The talk's theme, as he explained recently in an interview with Glenn Lowry, was that colorblindness shouldn't be a dirty word, which it has become on the political left. The concept was at the core of the anti-slavery movement, the core of the civil rights movement, and was later abandoned, Mr. Hughes said. We should investigate the wisdom of it as a principle. The idea of colorblindness is that no one ever gets penalized for their racial identity, and there's a logic to that for governing a racially diverse society in the long run. That's common sense. But we live in an age when common sense is not only uncommon, it's controversial. It's controversial to argue that children fare better in two-parent families. It's controversial to argue that someone who swam on the boys' team last year shouldn't be allowed to swim on the girls' team this year. It's controversial to condemn unequivocally Hamas's massacre of unarmed Israeli civilians on October 7th. And yes, it's controversial to argue that race-neutral policies are preferable to policies that promote racial favoritism. The day after Mr. Hughes's talk, he received a call from Mr. Anderson, who said that black employees at TED were upset by his remarks. Mr. Anderson asked Mr. Hughes to meet with them. Mr. Hughes agreed, but the employees backed out without an explanation. Two weeks later, Mr. Hughes received an email from Mr. Anderson explaining that he was under pressure to not post the talk online. The email cited an unnamed social scientist friend of Mr. Anderson who said Mr. Hughes's argument for colorblind public policies was directly contradicted by an extensive body of rigorous research. Mr. Hughes was confused. I'm thinking, he told Mr. Lowry, are they preparing the grounds to censor my talk using fact-checking as a pretense? The talk had passed Ted's own fact-checking process. Every word of a Ted talk is fact-checked before it gets spoken. And you don't deviate from the script at all, and I didn't. Another week passed, and the talk still hadn't been posted. Another email from Ted arrived, this one inviting Mr. Hughes to participate in a moderated conversation with opponents of colorblindness, after which both his talk and the debate would be published online. Reluctantly, he agreed. 
His talk was posted on Ted's website on July 28th. The debate with the New York Times columnist was posted two weeks later. But Mr. Hughes believes Ted didn't live up to its end of the bargain. Mr. Anderson pleaded with me to adopt a strange release strategy in order to amplify my talk, which I suspected was a bit of corporate spin doctoring. Mr. Hughes wrote in Substack about the ordeal. Then Ted did the opposite of amplifying my talk. They deliberately underpromoted and sandbagged it on their website. Now, what's going on here? Well, again, more than one person has asked if I can kind of explain the roots of all of this stuff. Well, uh, to, to give you a nutshell version, a very long time ago, some chick listened to a talking snake and ate a piece of fruit she shouldn't have eaten. The rest is history. But the reality, the unflippant reality of it, what, what actually is going on. Let's go back to World War II. Our society was, before both wars, organized in particular ways. In Europe, after World War I, to put this in perspective for you, in Europe, after World War I, there were entire villages and towns where not an adult man existed. Men were wiped out. War had become so violent. Whole villages and towns lost their men on the battlefields of Europe, which required young men and boys to step up to fill the void, but also necessitated a great realignment of the workforces in Great Britain and the rest of Europe, where you had uh, lords in an aristocracy, many of whom were dead, aristocracies turned upside down, towns turned upside down, the valets and the butlers no longer existed, they were dead on battlefields. Women stepped into the void. Fast forward a couple decades to World War II, and it spills over into the United States. Women who are homemakers go to work. Men go off to war. Families are discombobulated. The war ends. People come home. They rebuild their lives. The men had had a taste of being abroad. The women had had a taste of work. Society begins to reorder itself. Beyond where it had been, you start to see upticks in divorce. You start to see uh, all sorts of upticks in social ills that didn't exist before the wars. But it has a lot to do with the way society is reordering itself. It's the fallout from society. It's not there's something inherently wrong with society. It's it's the fallout from society as people cluster together now in cities and in suburbs and in uh, the, the country becomes more mobile and people start moving out of their communities and they move away from home. Uh, the, 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 the ties that bind are no longer there. And then you have an ex- birth explosion and we get the boomers. And a war-weary group of parents are now for really the first time sending all their children off into public schools. And those boomers begin to see a global world, not just their backyard. Their dads had been abroad fighting Nazis, and now they've moved to cities away from homes. They've left the farms. They've gone to the urban and suburban areas. 
society continues to realign itself. And into this mix comes the thriving quest for new ideas. The quest for new ideas. Now, this is actually something, and and let me just deviate here and say this is something actually very pagan. And I want to be careful here because this isn't intended to make a theological point here. It's just if you go back to ancient Rome, ancient Rome battled back and forth over the centuries between new ideas and old ideas. And it descended back to the Greeks. The Greeks were very skeptical of new ideas. The Romans loved new ideas. When Paul argues on the Areopagus, uh, you read in in Acts, Paul is arguing that this idea of of the Trinity and and God and Christ, that this is actually a very old idea. It's not some new fad. This is a very old idea to the Greeks. The Romans, they all wanted something new. Modernity and the Romans, let's face it, we're they're ancient to us, but the Romans had hot water, they had cold water, they, they had baths, they had a lot of things. I mean, the Romans had better concrete than we have concrete right now. They, they at the time, would have been considered the modern society. They loved the new. And the new was as destabilizing to the Romans as it is to us. you got to remember Emperor Augustus spent a lot of time, energy, and thought on how do I put families back together and keep husbands from cheating on their wives and destabilizing families. Because the great new ideas in Rome at the time were also the destabilizing ideas of families really don't matter. Well, in the 60s, you have the sexual revolution. The boomers have come of age. They're they're. Dads were fighting Nazis. They're tired. The kids want new ideas. The kids love the new ideas, like the Romans. They love the new ideas. And a lot of what's happening is in reaction to a fear of another world war, there is an embrace on college campuses of Marxist ideologies that the Soviets actually fund and see as a secret weapon into the United States, where over time they'll begin to spread Marxist ideology to the faculty boomers who love the new ideas, who will to the younger boomers hand them out because they're cool and hip ideas, who will over time generationally expand them. The Soviets funded a lot of this stuff in the 50s and 60s in the United States. They just assumed they would survive to see what's happening now. So where does it all come from? It started first in law schools, critical theory. Critical theory was this idea started in law schools in the 60s, to explain that uh, as a pushback to the rugged individualism of the prevailing American zeitgeist of the 50s and 60s that actually were a collectivist society of groups and you cannot elevate yourself out of your group but are bound to your group. And the structure of the country must be viewed through those groups and the dynamics of power between those groups. And white male Christians rule the roost, therefore they're the oppressor, therefore they're the bad ones. And for us to understand the effects on the oppressed, we must understand that the oppressor with unconscious bias punishes the oppressed, which is why black families started breaking up. And and this comes from the left's unwillingness to recognize that Lyndon Johnson's great society that they pushed would fail. 
when it started failing and black families started breaking up and, and black men started leaving the families and started going to jail and it, women became increasingly dependent on the government, the left couldn't comprehend that their new ideas were failing. They presumed it was the poisoned nature of the bad old ideas that were causing the fallout as a reaction to the new ideas. One of the inherent underpinnings of the left is they have no sense of history. And combined with their lack of awareness of history is their refusal to acknowledge when their ideas fail. Because it's never that their ideas fail. It's the reaction to their ideas or the reaction of the old ideas pushing back against their new ideas that are causing the problem. Not their ideas. Being a leftist means you never have to say, I was wrong. This trickles out of college campuses. It goes through the academy into the public schools as teachers trained in these schools get into the public school systems. They begin in urban areas in particular to embrace the ideas. Society continues to unravel. Black poverty goes up. Single parentness goes up. Crime goes up. It's always the old ideas, and they got to come up with a way to do it. They embrace the idea of critical theory, and they extrapolate that, well, this is uh, all these old privileged white guys. They've ordered society, and it oppresses people. Let's examine the oppression, and they begin to teach kids these ideas. We're seeing the chickens come home to roost now with these ideas, with, with these the new ideas coming back in. This idea of, of, of ordered structures are bad. The idea of the individual is bad. The people can't take responsibility for themselves. It's a collective group idea. And by the way, that's a very ancient pagan idea. It was one of the ideas that the Romans floated to, that, that, that people are assigned a group category. With the Romans, it was ethnicities and tribes. It's the same thing happening now. It's not a new idea. It's a very old, dangerous idea creeping back in where individuals' individuality is stripped away and they're assigned part of a group and those groups are either or bad based on who they are. How does this all happen? Here's your side theological point. If you are a believer of the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition, or the Christian tradition, in this country in particular, the Christian tradition, you come from an idea that there's an absolute truth. As your faith fades, the pagan ideas creep back in. And a foundational underpinning of Gnosticism and paganism is that there is not one truth. As churches declined, it allowed very ancient religions to creep back into society. And those ancient religions have orthodoxies and ideologies adjacent to them that are being embraced. And then you fast forward to the 21st century and social media, and you have these galvanizing events like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, and now these protests around the country, and it accelerates things. It provides fuel to the fires, and right now we're seeing everything burn. So where does it play out? I'll tell you where it plays out because it's an obvious fallout of all of this when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425 should you wish to be on the program. Now, where does where does all this stuff go? Just to review, we're, we're essentially we're seeing old religions creep back in. 
You can identify them by, for example, Gnosticism, that there's certain hidden meaning. You have to see the world in certain ways and access certain people and certain ideas. Um, where does it all head, though? It burns itself out. It The problem is it burns up a lot of people and land along the way, but it burns itself out. Uh, they consume each other. They turn on each other. The competing ideas do. Now, that's bad and destabilizing in the short term, and that's what we're going through right now is the destabilization period where these competing ideologies all burn each other out. Uh, it will eventually come to an end, and, and part of the fastest way to move beyond it and to get through this dark age period is for parents in particular to take matters into their own hands in terms of educating their kids, um, pull them out of the systems teaching them these things, and, and deprive the fire of oxygen. Now, when we come back, I got a special guest I'm looking forward to talking to. Right now, I want to tell you about the Eden Pure Thunderstorm because you can get three of them for less than $200. I travel with mine. Uh, they're small. They're slightly bigger than your hand. I can put it in my travel bag. I can plug it up with a USB cord in a car or plug it into uh, a wall. They come in useful for traveling. If, if the hotel room you're in, someone smoked in it, or a rental car, someone had smoked in the rental car, then, and they haven't gotten rid of the fumes. The Eden Pure Thunderstorm wipes out odors. It li- wipes out pet odors, litter box odors, smoke odors, musty odors. You name it, it works. A buddy of mine actually bought a house where lifelong smokers had lived in the house. He and his wife put Eden Pure Thunderstorms in the rooms in the house and, and wiped out all the nasty smell in the house, uh, cleaned up the air. You can get three of them for less than $200 at EdenPureDeals.com, EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code is just my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K. You get three for less than $200 upstairs, downstairs, your basement, your travel bag, your RV, wherever you need them. EdenPureDeals.com is the website. Eden like the Garden of Eden, pure as the driven snow. EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code, my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms for less than $200. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the United States of America. Welcome to those of you in St. Louis, Missouri listening now. Glad to have you with me. Gainesville, Florida, Phoenix, Arizona, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, Keep growing. Now, I got a special guest for all of you. He's the insurance commissioner in the state of Georgia, but he's more than just the insurance commissioner in the state of Georgia. He's got quite the background, including being a graduate of the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange, uh, where he spent time in Israel with Israeli law enforcement and has some insight into how they keep their community safe, particularly given what's going on. So uh, welcome to Commissioner John King. How are you? Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity to come and chat with you and your and your audience. You're, you're just you're, you're you're like the Renaissance man. You've been in the military. You, you got a, a police training. You, you've been to Israel. You're you're the insurance commissioner. This is why I like you. you. You're always full of surprises. Well, thank you so much. And I'm and I'm passionate about this this subject. Uh, you know, I remember my first deployment uh, for Desert Storm. And me and my fellow National Guardsmen were getting ready to go uh, to combat. And this had been a very long time since the United States uh, military had gone to a a major deployment like this. And then I heard the news of Israel being attacked by Scud missiles. And uh, the Iraqis, you know, because, because the Israelis were our allies, Got 42 Scud missiles, and if you have no idea what a Scud missile is, this is a gigantic missile. And the Israelis, you know, it, it, they suffered immensely for being our friends. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that made an impression on me. I mean, the no, United States would have not have taken uh, that kind of attack quietly. And uh, so, I'm, you know, the fact that they have they are being pressured to hold back, uh, there's, there's no way we, the Americans, would stand for for uh, for our country and our government to to be patient uh, like they have. And it's just they have to defend and protect their communities because they have an existential threat against against their their citizens. Now, talk to me a little bit what it's like, and because you know. The, the, Israel is it's more complicated in a lot of ways, obviously, but also within Israel, you do have a, a Jewish and an Arab population that do largely coexist peacefully, excluding Hamas and Palestine, just in Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. And that makes policing over there. I've got to imagine like in this country, we have races that you can largely tell apart. And, and there you don't necessarily know who the Arab and who the Jew is a lot of times. And yet you've got these police forces that have to deal with yeah. these situations. Well, thank you. You know, it, it, which is, uh, what is incredibly different about the Israelis is they, the part, their police officers, their military are very well represented with Arab, uh, Arab Israelis, Christian Druze, are all very well represented. One of the police chiefs that, uh, that uh, one of the stations, Surat, that Hamas went and put all the police officers against the wall and, and, and killed 20 of those police officers. The chief of police was Muslim. And so that, you know, most Americans don't recognize that this is a very diverse and inclusive nation that people are uh, represented. And automatically they assume that, that everything is controlled by, by uh, a Jewish leadership. And I, I would, I would tell you, I would just, I would disagree with that. It's just they're very well represented. Some of the most effective units are led by, you know, they have a love for their nation. Yeah, you know, one of the striking stories that came out of October 7th was uh, from one family where the, the parents were killed and the son, they're Arab, Israeli Arabs, and son says that, that his dad told them that they were Arab, they weren't Jew, and Hamas replied, you're still Israeli, and killed them. Exactly. That that is the, the viciousness of, of this attack. Uh and, and Hamas is a terrorist organization. No no different than ISIS, no different than any other uh, organization that I've spent a good portion of my adult life fighting uh you know to protect this nation. Yeah, yeah, just so I mean you're looking at the lay of the land there. You've got the, the military endeavor, obviously, going into Gaza. But, I mean, the police in Israel, as you've mentioned, they've most of them obviously have military backgrounds because of compulsory service there. But I, I got to imagine policing the streets of Israel is far different from policing the streets of Atlanta, given the situation. It's slightly different uh, because, of people, you know, the, the, the idea of seeing people carrying firearms is, is very routine there because, you know, the— the the nation uh, it, it, they have a you know national compulsory uh, service, uh, but the, the officers are in, incredibly well trained, very, and they spend a lot of time on being culturally aware. They understand that they're in a, in, in a very diverse environment, and they have to be respectful of the culture, the religion. Imagine trying to be a police officer in in uh, in Jerusalem with all those. All the major religions basically come in and, and clashing and, and, and having conflicts and disagreements. And these police officers have to navigate the sensitivity 
and, and still maintain their composure and their safety. Yeah, that's it, it just it's it's a remarkable environment. So it, let me ask you a step back a little bit. And this is slightly outside of your wheelhouse. And so I'm going to apologize in advance. But this state uh, th- that we're in, Georgia, has really good relationships with Israel. In fact, Governor Kemp, I guess, had a big trade trip over there last year. And I've got to imagine that just even at the governmental levels from from your office and others, there is a, a connection, a level of support to be offered to the Israelis. Absolutely. Uh, we've had a relationship with Israeli uh, uh, law enforcement agencies for 30 years in this state. We've exchanged, you know, we go, we've gone to Israel. Israelis have come to learn from us uh, some of their, uh, for example, bomb techs, uh, their bomb technicians uh, have worked and trained with our state agencies. Uh, and that's why our capabilities in this state are, are, are second to none. Uh, and so we have a very close relationship. Major police chiefs and sheriffs have gone there uh, and learned a great deal, uh, especially how do you police in a community in the middle of a conflict zone that is a democratic society. It's the only nation in that part of the world that, that is truly democratic. And, and they're in the middle of a conflict zone. Yeah, it, 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 it makes it makes it tough. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Commissioner John King. He's the insurance commissioner in Georgia, but he's got a military and, and law enforcement background. Uh, and that, I guess, you, you know, now that I, I've expanded my audience outside of Georgia, I, I should talk to you about that a little bit because you do – have a military background and a police background and, and were appointed into the insurance commissioner position by the governor, Brian Kemp, here in Georgia, ran successfully for it, uh, are now the elected insurance commissioner. But, I mean, can you talk a little bit just about your military and, and police background so people understand that that I'm not just having a random person on the radio. You actually know what you're talking about here. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I just recently retired from the military as a major general, and I spent 42 years uh, serving not only our great state of Georgia, but serving our nation as a military officer. I started as a young enlisted soldier in the Georgia Army National Guard and, and uh, retired as a two-star general about four months ago and deployed all over the world, uh, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Africa, uh, to a number of locations around the world. Uh, and so I'm completely, you know, very humbled and privileged to have gotten this opportunity. That This opportunity doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. And, of course, I started my career with the Atlanta Police Department, walking a footbeat on Auburn Avenue. Uh, worked in an anti-drug unit, uh, and then uh, had the privilege of serving the great city of Doraville, one of the most diverse communities in our in our state, uh, as chief of police before uh, the governor asked me to serve as the insurance commissioner. I, you know, I forgot you you were also a police officer in the city of Atlanta. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> um, so, so let me ask you now, with with the the police issues that we have in in the state and and uh, crime, I mean. It, do you still have a perception that there there are some communities in the state that maybe aren't as supportive of the police as they should be and, and what that does to retention? They're hard to find in Georgia. I think most Georgia communities recognize the incredible value and the incredible importance of a positive relationship with their police departments. Uh, most chiefs, most mayors recognize that without public safety, a community is not going to thrive. And what happens when when police, you know, officers don't feel like they have the support of the community, they basically, you know, will 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 not do self initiated calls. And I, my generation of police officers thrive on 
going and looking for problems to work with the community to fix. Now, unfortunately, with, with the current climate, a lot of police officers, a lot of leaders in law enforcement are, are concerned and, and are not willing to take any risks. So they'll sit in and get the free Wi-Fi at the coffee shop and wait for a call to be dispatched. And that is not a way to protect the community. Uh, and so luckily, uh, the state leaders from all the way from Governor Kemp all the way down to, to local leaders understand that we have to make sure that our police officers know that they have the back end of the community. Without that, nothing can happen. Okay, so, you know, I can tell you're not a professional politician because you actually finish your sentences, and, and there's a, a clear cue for me to actually ask you another question. I, I continue to be impressed by your willingness to actually finish the sentence instead of having me interrupt you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Look, I, I got to leave it there. It's always my pleasure to talk to you. It, 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 it hadn't seen you in a while, but it's always good to hear your voice. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This is, this is something that I'm passionate about. Thank you so much. Commissioner John King, he's the insurance commissioner in Georgia, um, just retired as a general from the Army National Guard here in Georgia, has worked all over the world, including working with Israeli police uh, over in Israel. Just no, I just I like the guy so much. Glad to have him on. 877-973-7425 is the program. I'm I'm going to jump out here in just a minute. So those of you on on the phones, just stand by here. But I I, I gotta I'm I'm unburdening myself by burdening you with this. Uh, the latest video to come out of Israel. You know, there as I explained the other day, how deeply they take death uh, seriously in Israel, and one of the awful stories that they're now sharing with Hamas is in one family. They uh, removed body parts from a family, from the son and the daughter, the mother and the father, and then made the family pass them around the table. So they removed a father's eye from the father and made the son and the daughter and the mother hold it removed the son's finger and the daughter's foot, the mother's breast, made them all pass them around before killing them. We're not dealing with animals. Animals don't do that. We're dealing with monsters and demons. And monsters and demons have to be sent to hell. It's that straightforward. Now, let me switch gears, get out of that, get that out of my head and yours as well. Let me talk to you about the holiday season that's coming up. You're going to be doing a lot of shipping. And one of the biggest pains in the butt of shipping is having to go to the post office or UPS or place like that and stand in line at the UPS store or at um, the post office. There's a great way to bypass that with stamps.com. And you don't have a contract to sign. You don't have a long-term commitment to sign. If you go to stamps.com and you click on the microphone and you put in my name, Eric, you can start a free trial. You get free postage. You get a free digital scale. And you get set up to be able to ship from your laptop and your printer at home. It makes it a fantastic way to do shipping so you bypass the lines. You can even schedule pickup to your home or your office so you're not going to the store to drop off the packages. But I can tell you when I go to the store to drop off the package, they I, I'm there enough because I do it a lot. I've been a Stamps.com customer for a while. They, they know I've got everything ready to go. And skip the line, they scan the the barcode, and off I go. And it's great. You also get over 84% savings with UPS and the post office. You find the fastest rate, the ship, the cheapest rate to ship, and you get it all done. It's a fantastic deal. No long-term commitment, no contract. You go to stamps.com, click on the microphone, and you put in my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Get shipping today with stamps.com. 
Hello, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. I want to take Glenn's phone call real quick. Glenn, welcome to the program. How are you? Glenn? Uh, Glenn, you there? Yes, yes. Hello. Hi there. Welcome. Hi. Hope you're doing good today. Uh, I'm curious, you know, the news cycle seems to have changed since all the Israel stuff is taking the heat off of Biden. I think Biden enjoying this, dragging it out. You know, uh, yeah, I had kind of thought the same thing uh, that, for example, you were not hearing about Hunter Biden's laptop as much. We're not hearing about the impeachment inquiry. Jim Jordan's been distracted running for speaker. There's a problem, however, in today's Gallup poll. I'm glad you brought this up because I've been meaning to speak about this. Um, Biden has fallen 11 percent with Democrats. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is dividing Democrats. It's uniting Republicans for Israel and dividing Democrats. Inside the White House, the National Security Agency, uh, the uh, National Security uh, Department of the White House as well, and the State Department and the Defense Department, they're having to have listening sessions because the progressives don't feel like Joe Biden, I say feel intentionally here, the progressives don't feel like Joe Biden is sufficiently deferential to the needs of the Palestinians. I'm not making that up. They're having struggle sessions where Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan or others are having to sit down and listen to progressives talk about how mean the Jews are and, and they need to do more for the Palestinians. And they're mad at Joe Biden for supporting Benjamin Netanyahu. They're mad that he held hands with Benjamin Netanyahu. His support among Democrats is down 11% according to Gallup, and it's because of this. Meanwhile, nationally, you should know Donald Trump remains ahead in the real clear politics average by seven-tenths of a percent. Now, there's a caveat there. Donald Trump does very well in online polls. He doesn't do well in polls of cell phones and landlines, and polls of cell phones and landlines are more accurate. But even there, the um, real person poll from USA Today, tie. The real person poll from Ann Seltzer, one of the best pollsters in the country, tie. Yahoo News, Biden up one. Fox News, Biden up one. These are real person surveys. So tied or Biden up one is bad for Joe Biden, the incumbent president. There are warning signs for Trump. The big warning sign, honestly, is that Trump can win, but the amount of resources that would have to be deployed to get him across the finish line could cost the GOP winning the Senate. When if you put up another Republican nominee, that you wouldn't have to spend as much money because they would have enough in their war chest, uh, and, and they're not as polarizing as Trump to the public. I mean, a lot of the public still says they'd they hate them both, but they'd either stay home or vote for Biden. That's a problem for Trump. He could overturn that with a lot of resources, but he's spending all the money on lawyers right now. But this isn't good for Biden. Uh, and when you recirculate to these other issues, the economy itself is pretty damning for Biden. But right now, he's being like hurt within his own party because of Israel. And the 
progressives, which is hilarious. 